If we haven't met, I'm Kyle. I'm one of the pastors. It's my great privilege every week to feed the flock. And some of you have met pastors that are all about getting your money or all about building their kingdom. And they do it all under the guise of preaching. So you don't trust pastors. So before we even open the book, I want to make sure you have a, a correct view of who I am and a correct view of what I do. I'm an exegete. That's who I am. I open up a portion of scripture and I give the author's intent. I, I pull meaning from the text, that's exegesis, instead of put meaning into the text, that's eisegesis. The text is king, I am not king. I am a slave to the text. So God has not called me to be revolutionary in my preaching. The Athenians in Acts 17 spent all their time trying to tell some new thing. I spend no time trying to be new, original, or cutting edge. I spend all the time trying to be scriptural. I want to say what God has said. I deliver the truth. I, I do not create it. I'm not the cook. I'm the butler. I don't prepare the meal. I just deliver it. And I don't want you to focus on the butler. I want you to feast on the meal. That's actually why I don't move around on the stage a lot. That's why I preach from notes. I used to free preach. That's preaching without notes. And I found it was more personality and, and less Bible. The people used to say to me, you move around more while preaching than I move around on the dance floor. Well, I don't have to do that anymore. Because as Robert Smith Jr. said, I preach a doctrine that dances. We are not seeking to be a personality-driven church. You can build a crowd around a personality, but you can only build a church on the Word. And I think the church is married to one man. And it's not the pastor. It's Christ. So that helps you get a correct view of who I am. Now let's move toward a correct view of what I do. My goal is not to make you happy. I think you need something with more substance than happiness. If you've lived long enough, you've come to understand that there are times when mere happiness cannot bear the weight of the gospel. That's why I always aim for glory. In other words, I try to feed you steak and not cotton candy. Cotton candy tastes good, but it melts with heat. It gives you a little boost of energy for a while, but you'll leave and eventually crash. And you need more than a sugar high. You need something that will sustain you in your darkest days. And that's glory. That's why we preach through entire books of the Bible. We call it expository preaching. Uh, I'll, I'll illustrate. When you go to the local YMCA on a summer day, you'll see three things. You'll see, a, a pool, you'll see poolside furniture, a diving board, and the actual pool. They represent three ways to treat the biblical text. I could treat the text like poolside furniture. No one visits the Y for the poolside furniture. It's not the main attraction. You will spend some time on the furniture, but it's, it's not the reason you go. So I could treat the text that way. It's not the main attraction, but occasionally I'll return to it. I'm not spending all my time in it. It's just a place I will frequent every now and then. Now, I could also treat the text like a diving board. In this approach, I would read the text, but never return to it. It is a launching pad to get into something else. This way, the text is not used as the intended destination. It's just, you just jump off of it to get to where you really want to go. 
It's not my desire to treat the text like poolside furniture or a diving board. It's my desire to treat the text like a pool. Take you, my listeners, for a swim in the text. It's the word-saturated nature of exposition. I immerse you in the biblical text. Expository preaching is never shock and awe. It's not light shows and parades. It's a steady diet of the word that builds you in the faith. It's playing the long game. And I know that it will take a bit for some of you to be conditioned to expository preaching. But when you are, you will not be able to go to a church that doesn't do it. Because once you've had steak, the dollar menu just doesn't taste the same. Once you've experienced glory, gimmicks will not satisfy. Once you've seen Jesus, you'll want to see less of the preacher and his clever jokes and personality. Now... To the book of Esther. We are in the fourth week of our eight-week study of Esther. So let me catch you up on, on what's, what's happened so far. Uh, nine years ago, Persian king Xerxes threw a massive six-month-long banquet. He paraded his riches, his soldiers, his military might before the leaders of, the, of his nation. And the king's desire was to convince the governors and military commanders that they could successfully invade and defeat the Grecian Empire. It was the war council of 483 BC in the palace of Susa. Xerxes had one final thing to parade before the commanders, and that was his wife, Vashti. She refused, and he either had her killed or he banished her. Now, that was nine years ago. Five years ago, they held the Persian version of The Bachelor. Mordecai, a backslidden Jew, probably not a believer, convinced his adopted daughter to enter. And in the words of the Hebrew, she was a knockout. 10 out of 10. She's very attractive, and she won. That's five years ago. Now allow me to remind you what happened yesterday. A day ago, Haman and Mordecai revived a family feud between the Amalekites and the Jews. Mordecai refused to salute Haman, his superior. And as a result, Haman the Hateful concocted a secret plan to kill all the Jews, including Mordecai. So he went to the king with lies and unproven accusations against the Jews and requested that Xerxes give a decree for all the Jews to die in 11 months. Now Xerxes should have responded to Haman and said, Hey, man, that... See, see what I did there? I'll wait. I'll catch up. Yeah. That's a little rash. We're not going to do that. Instead, he just went along with the plot. Chapter 3 ends with those two leaning back with their feet up on the table, drinking a couple of Bud Lights. It's all still behind closed doors. But tomorrow, in chapter 4, it's news for public consumption. Today is tomorrow. Let's go for a swim in chapter 4. Let's do the uh, shallow end first. This is the most well-known chapter of, of the book, and rightly so, it is the pivotal chapter. It's why the book is named Esther. It's my opinion that Mordecai and Esther both convert to God in this chapter. They were not believing Jews, but now they become believing Jews. It really reveals something unique about how God works. He takes one cup of their sinful choices, and then one cup of their national tragedy, and dumps both into his sovereign blender, mixes them up, 
And it all comes out for his glory. You can probably guess the most famous words from the book. It's behind me on the screen. Let's all say it together. For such a time as this. Now that's a phrase that will dance. What an encouraging statement. You'll see it on Instagram pictures and coffee cups, even t-shirts. We all want that moment for which we were made. That one decision, that one act, that one minute, which makes all the other minutes, all the other chaos, all the other questions make sense. We want the Esther moment, our one shining moment. David Barrett, a songwriter from Michigan, wrote the famous song, One Shining Moment. Every once in a while you get a song with no fault lines. It all just fits together perfectly. Coach K at Duke University says it's the best song written for any, any sport in the history of, history of man. Uh, he's usually always wrong because he's a Duke fan. But even a bloke, broken you know, clock is right two times a day. So here he's right. The song is, is always played at the end of the Final Four coverage with the winning team standing at center court watching on the Jumbotron a montage of highlights from the tournament. The first verse is about inspiration and hard work. The second verse deals with adversity, accompanied with highlights of injured players and missed shots. The bridge includes the line, fill the wind in your face, and the video shows someone driving to the basket. The lyrics go like this. And all the years, no one knows just how hard you worked, but now it shows. In one shining moment, it's all on the line. One shining moment there, frozen in time. I want you to have that moment. I want you to have your Esther moment. I want you to have it today. But I want you to have it in context. Our minds, in our minds, we picture Mordecai saying to Esther, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then suddenly her dark eyes light up. And Esther stands to her feet, straightens her back, looks pensively off into the distance while a montage of the previous nine years play back. And the wind in her face as she drives for the final rose on the final episode. As the montage arrives to a dramatic end, Esther boldly barks, If I perish, I perish. Now, if that's how it happened, that is one shining moment. I just don't think it played out like that. Esther didn't rejoice when she heard these words. She wasn't smiling when these words came dancing off of Cousin Mort's lips. She received those words in rebuke, scolded for her self-indulgent, self-preserving mindset. She was about to miss her kingdom assignment because she was so caught up in her kingdom privileges. Mordecai gave her the gift of perspective. Esther's speech, if I perish, I perish, is a statement of resignation to the inevitable rather than one of robust faith. A whimper rather than a bark. Lewis Patton says, she goes as one would submit to an operation because there's no chance of escaping death. Let's dive into chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, the camera focuses in on Mordecai as he leaves his corner office down the hall from the Oval Office. The day has ended. He's going home. On the way, he passes a local uh, United States of Persia post office. 
Outside, taped on the window, he reads this edict from the king. An order from King Xerxes, the king of all the world. On December 13th, all residents of my kingdom are deputized to kill every Jew in the empire. His jaw drops, his heart stops, his head plops. His pig-headed pride brought disaster to the whole race. Haman has taken this way too far. He jerked the paper off the window and notice the middle of verse 1. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He ripped his shirt to shreds. You remember Hulk Hogan, that theologian? Hulk Hogan used to rip his, his shirt to shreds to show his power. Where Mordecai did it to reflect what's happening on the inside. His heart is being ripped to shreds. He clothes himself in a dark, rough garment made of goat's hair, similar to a burlap sack. He spreads ashes on his head. He walks through an open area outside of the city gates, which were typically marketplaces. So Mordecai is basically in the grocery store, wailing, shrieking, and rolling on the floor. People are walking and gawking, so distracted they're running into one another with their shopping carts. They aren't unfamiliar with the activity. The Persians tore their clothes in grief when defeated by the Greeks. They were unfamiliar with why Mordecai was mourning. This is a massive step in the good direction for Mordecai. He's finally identifying with the people of God. He was a secret Jew before, but now it's out. He wants to make it known. He's gone from silence to public mourning. I personally believe this is his conversion. Although no, not couched in overtly religious language, part of getting his faith active was grieving in public. And in, in our Western world, we hide our mourning and our tears behind handkerchiefs and black veils. Not in the Middle East. More than likely, you've seen that part of the world perhaps through video clips on the news as a group pushes a casket overhead through the crowd and everyone's wailing. See, we run the risk of missing what's going on here. We in the West are so conditioned to keeping our grief private. We may pass off demonstrative and noisy lamentations as, as a mere melodramatic show. Look at the... Look at the drama king over there. However, Eastern cultures express grief this way. When something bad happens, they let you know. They change their clothes. They put ashes on their head. They go out in public. They scream and cry and wail. There's actually a principle here that rises above all cultures, and I want to give it to you. When tragedy strikes, it's okay to mourn. How do you deal with tragedy, pain, heartbreak? I'm not talking about mere trouble. I'm talking about tragedy. You discover your spouse is having an affair. Your house is being foreclosed. You've been fired. You've heard the dreaded C word from someone in the white medical jacket. Your child did something that absolutely wrecked you. Some tragedy hit you and left you on the ground writhing in ashes. How do you deal with that? 
Do you medicate? Medicate with plastic? Something terrible happens? You run to the store. Got to buy something. Buy, buy, buy. Also, I think an NSYNC song. Do you medicate with partying? Drown your sorrows in a bottle? Or another romantic encounter? Or do you bottle it all up inside? People in the West, particularly men, they don't grieve well. Like men, when is the last time you've cried? Probably can't remember. A fellow battle buddy killed in war, family member dies, marriage wrecked, nothing drops you to the floor. Because tough guys don't cry. And this isn't just men, it's everyone in the West. Uh, sir, how, how are you sleeping? Fine. Ma'am, how are you doing? Great. Meanwhile, he has anger issues and she has postpartum and they're both fine, fine, fine. Great, great, great. Don't assume people know what's going on in your soul. Reach out for help. You can't bear together if you don't share together. And watch how Mordecai reaches out for help in verse 2. He went, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Basically, he leaves the grocery store parking lot. He goes outside the administrative building where he works, the, the king's gate. And like certain golf courses will not allow t-shirts and shorts, the king's palace did not allow mourning. Don't you come in here with ashes on your head. It's a breach of etiquette to come into the king's presence crying. You're saying his presence isn't enough to keep you happy. However, there is another king who operates under a different law. That's the second principle I want to give you. Your king invites you and your tears into his presence. Not everything is happy clappy in your life, so God doesn't expect you to come to him always happy clappy. The majority of the Psalms are written by people on the ground covered in ashes lamenting. The book of Lamentations is one big ugly cry from a dude. Grieving comes in waves. And mourning well takes trust in a big God. A God who is unpredictable and unexplainable. And if you're not careful, theology can tell you, and rightly, that God is sovereign. And you can be tempted to bypass your emotions. But God is a God of emotions. And feeling the weight of hard emotions is extremely difficult. Yet feeling it appropriately is what makes you spiritually healthy. God who mourns created man who mourns. I read an article this week about a couple who lost a child. They experienced God mourning with them. Why? God understands the pain of losing a child. My goal is not for you to trust in one of my carefully crafted sentences. I want you to trust in Jesus' ability to comfort. I, I wrote a note to my kids this week. I write a note to each child every month. One note a month for each child. Never long, sometimes just a sentence. I'm going to give them that collection of notes on their 18th birthday. This week I wrote this. Early in your life you only cried because you wanted a toy or you were hungry. One day though your tears will come from a deeper place. And when that day comes, I want you to remember one thing. Your heavenly father delights to hold you when you cry.
What if your one shining moment comes in the midst of grief? Verse 3 opens like a, a BBC World News segment, cutting immediately to get the reaction on the ground. The camera zooms in on men and women all over the kingdom, tearing their clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, loudly proclaiming their distress and grief. Notice carefully the language in verse 3 in the middle. It says they were fasting and weeping and lamenting. That language appears again word for word. Or perhaps it's better to say the language is borrowed word for word from Joel chapter 2 verses 12 through 13. That earlier prophecy invites the people of Israel to return to the Lord. And how are you to, to return to the Lord? With fasting, weeping, and lamenting. I agree with Hebrew scholars that this is an echo of Joel 2. This is a mark not only of Mordecai coming back to God, but many complacent Jews all over the empire coming back to God. Grieving together is an act of worship. Rejoice with those who rejoice and then weep with those who weep. Your one shining moment comes anytime you're completely dependent on God. And that happens to be often when your head is covered in ashes. When you're wearing mourning clothes, remind yourself. The Lord will bring a greater good out of all the frustration you feel and out of all the evil you've experienced. Remind yourself that as a chemist distills healing drugs from poisonous plants, so God distills glory from ashes. The story moves on. Esther sits in her palace in luxury. And her maids... Look out the window and see a disturbance. They call Esther over to see and she spots her cousin crying. Notice verse 4 in the middle. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. She's rushing it. Stop mourning. But he says, I still need time. But he would not accept them. She sends him a, a brand new Armani suit. Says, I want you to change. He says, get that away from me. She wants to know if someone in the family has died. Uh, Mordecai, why are you mourning? And notice how isolated Esther had become. Every Jew from India to Ethiopia were mourning and lamenting the edict. But Esther had no clue. She was apparently the only Persian, the only person in the Persian empire that had not heard the news. Perhaps she didn't have time to look at the news between her manis and petties and all her shopping sprees and beauty treatments and afternoon teas. Since she had done such a great job of concealing her identity as a Jew, why would anyone think to inform her that there's a threat to this particular people group called the Jews? Esther sends her bodyguard, big, tall, ripped guy, similar to me, Outside to get all the details. He's, a, he's an errand boy. And he's doing a lot of running back and forth in the chapter. In fact, there are, there are three exchanges between Mordecai and, and Esther. And, and this guy's running back and forth giving it. Exchange number one is found in verse 6. Hathik went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. The, the betrayal of 
people in exchange for money has always been particularly repugnant. Never more so than when Judas betrayed Jesus. Here, Mordecai handed the bodyguard a copy of the edict he ripped from the window of the post office and he said, show her this and, and then tell her this. Tell her that Haman is going to exterminate us like a bunch of rats. I know I told you to keep your alien identity secret, but now it's time to use your cultural capital. It's not hard to picture the blood draining from Esther's face as she hears the news. Then they have the second exchange in verses 10 and 11. Esther sends a message back to her cousin. Her response, I think, is neutral. She doesn't say if she, if she would or would not help. She's just spitting the facts. She's saying, Houston, we have a problem. And here's what she says. She says, there's a single fate for every man and every woman who approaches the king without being invited. Death. Access to the king is strictly controlled. They protect him from attempts on his life. You know this, Mordecai. And from the vexation of people's problems. Nobody just walks into the Oval Office. Only his seven friends can just walk in at any time. Plus, you remember how he responded to a woman who disagreed with him in public, right? Does the name Vashti ring a bell? I'm supposed to go to him with Vashti audacity and say, you've made a bad government decision? In addition, he would be admitting that, I would be admitting that I've been deceiving him about my nationality. Oh, and um, cuz, we haven't had a good month. We don't exactly sleep in the same bed, you know. I haven't been in his room for 30 days. And you know he's not sleeping alone. His interest in me is waning. You've heard of the seven-year itch. Well, he got it at five years. Story picks up in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, don't imagine for a moment, Esther, that you're going to be safe in the palace while all the Jews are massacred in every province. You can't hide behind that purple curtain in your penthouse apartment. You can't hide behind the crown on your head. I am here to bring you a reality check. You're dead if you don't. and You're likely dead if you do. He continues, verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, I like this. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. This is the most important phrase in the chapter. This, this theology dances. Resignation is not among Christian virtues. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, along with numerous Hebrew commentators that date back a thousand years, all view this as a veiled allusion to God. God will save his people with or without you, Esther. There's a Messiah coming from us, coming from our people. So we may die, but I can guarantee you one thing. Not all of us will die. I like his confidence in God's promises. God will bless and sustain his people because of and through Jesus Christ. And what a, what a humbling reminder for all of us. God's plan includes us, but it doesn't depend on us. The final exchange is in verse 13. Let's take a look. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, 
and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. This brings us to the third principle. Principle number three. When you face overwhelming difficulties in your life or in your church, it is appropriate for you to fast and seek God's face. (laughs) We are a people who in our grief, we fast. In our grief, we need a mercy that this world cannot supply and we seek it from on high. The practice of fasting in the book of Esther contrasts with the more dominant note of feasting. While the world feasts, we fast. But in our fast, we do feast. We feast on the character and the presence of God. Some of you are not familiar with fasting. I would recommend to you a particular book by Scott McKnight entitled Cleverly Fasting. It's an excellent one. Scott McKnight, Fasting. Your one shining moment will build in you a body and mind that hungers for God. Not a body and mind that hungers to be seen on a jumbotron. Fasting is is plowing the spiritual ground of your soul. Almost every time the Bible speaks of fasting, it does so including prayer. But notice here, prayer is curiously omitted. But there were no Jewish fasts without prayer. So the author is purposefully refraining from mentioning prayer or God in the book because it's hard to see him when your head is covered in ashes. Notice here that the old Esther goes away and the new Esther appears. I think this is her conversion. Before others have made decisions for her, now she makes decisions for herself. She orders her guards. She orders Mordecai. For the first time, she's taking initiative. Up until this point in the story, Esther has been passive, following along the path of least resistance. But not anymore. She has changed from fear to faith, from hesitation to determination. Notice as Esther continues, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Principle number four. Take your hands off your life and put your life into the hands of God. If I perish, let me perish in a way that brings glory to God. If this trouble will consume me, let it consume me in a way that lights a fire for the glory of God. You can trust God with your tragedy. You can trust God with your tears. You can trust God with things you would never say to anyone else. Trust the affections of God toward you more than the afflictions of Satan against you. This week, I was looking at this chapter and rather getting a little depressed, to be honest with you. I mean, it's just everybody's crying in the fetal position. They're covered in ashes and they don't know if it's what's going to happen. We know the end of the story. They don't know the end of the story. I came across this wonderful truth in the scriptures. Psalm 30, verse 11, God says, I will remove your sackcloth and I'll clothe you with joy. Isaiah 61, 3, God says, I'll wipe the ashes off your head and I'll give you a beautiful headdress. He says, I'll replace your mourning clothes with 
Love this. Glory. Glory. Next week, we will see Esther before the throne. If Esther doesn't succeed before the throne, God's people are done, dead, toast. She alone must intercede for God's people. She is their mediator. She, however, directs our gaze to a better mediator, an ultimate mediator, one that is still needed at the end of the book. That brings us to our final principle. Esther 4 leaves us yearning and longing for a perfect mediator. It's said of Esther that she came for such a time as this. But that was really a, a road sign pointing to Christ who came for such a time as this. Let's compare the two, Esther and Jesus. Early Christmas present for you, a chart. <laughs> Esther, she identified with God's people by disclosing her race, but Jesus Christ identified with God's people by joining their race. Esther was willing to stand before King Xerxes on his throne, which is big. Jesus was willing to leave his throne and stand with us. Esther was seeking to save her people from an impending judgment. Massacre. Jesus was seeking to save his people from an impending judgment. When God pours out his wrath. God's edict has gone forth against us. Declaring us worthy of death because of sin. And the truth has been disseminated throughout his empire. The soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. Esther, willing to die for her people, probably with, an, with a swift blow from an axe. Jesus, willing to die for his people, facing worse than a swift blow from an axe, but the full torments of hell and the wrath of God. Going before the king, Jesus doesn't say, if I perish, I perish. But when I perish, I perish. Esther sought to close a, a chasm, a gap, a valley between the king and her people. The two were at odds, and what can she do to bring the two together? Jesus, our great mediator, sought to close a chasm. Between God and man. Sin caused the chasm. And what could be done to bring a holy God and an unholy people together? There must be a perfect sacrifice. Someone without sin to take man's sin. And that person is Jesus Christ. How did he do it? Well, Esther had to leave a pretty nice penthouse. But nothing like this. Jesus lived in the ultimate penthouse and was the ultimate beauty and left the glories of the palace and the security of heaven and became ugly. Robed his perfection in our flesh. Talk about the ultimate beauty becoming the ultimate repulsiveness that God would become man. And no one talked Jesus into coming. It wasn't like with Esther. 
He did not have to be persuaded. He came willingly. He bore the cross and he bore the sin and he bore the pain. His death marked the decisive moment of salvation. His gift to God, the gift of a perfect life, was accepted. Like at Christmas when you unwrap a gift, God unwrapped the gift of this perfect sinless life and it was pleasing to him. Jesus died, was buried. Three days later, up from the grave, he arose with the mighty triumph for his foes. He spent 40 days here in his resurrected body before ascending, slowly, ascending to heaven. What does Jesus Christ do now that he's ascended to heaven? Does he sleep eight hours a night? This morning I got up and I was thanking God for a, a good night's sleep. I said, God, I want, I want to I thank you for giving me sleep. I want to thank the one who never sleeps for giving me sleep. What does Jesus Christ do now he's ascended to heaven? He's not sleeping. He mediates. He intercedes for his children. He's called your name this morning. If no one else has called your names, your name has come across the lips of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. He says, Father, sustain this one in her battle with cancer. Give this one the strength to say no to sin. Help this one to endure the cost of following you. They're complaining about it. Reveal clearly to this one Satan's seduction. He's so blind to it. Help this one not to receive his or her worth from what they see on the phone. Help them not to count the likes, but count my salvation greater. Father, give grace upon grace to this one, covered in ashes, and fuse them with strength. If no one has called your name today, Jesus has. Esther shows us. Chapter 4 is a road sign pointing to the ultimate mediator. And he is closing the chasm, mediating for us. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.